Hello and welcome to F3. I'm Craig Fuller. Excited to welcome everybody here again and welcome back to a fascinating conversation about supply chain. 2021 has been the year of the supply chain. If you think of 2020 was the year of the pandemic, 2021 has largely been the story of the supply chain. And with me to talk about that is Kevin O'Meara, who's vice president of integrated supply chain at Shaw Industries. Shaw Industries is the world's largest floor covering uh, company, uh, providing everything from carpet to uh, to, to hardwood uh, that you see in your homes or in uh, corporate and commercial buildings. Kevin, welcome. Uh, I've known you for a couple of years. You're a student of the supply chain industry, so this is going to be a fascinating conversation. Uh, let's talk a little bit about where we're at today uh, in terms of this massive level of disruption. You have happened to work for one of the world's largest conglomerates, uh, Berkshire Hathaway. So you're seeing it from all avenues. You guys own a major railroad, uh, but you also happen to be big into the industrial and consumer product sector of the economy. Uh, what are you guys experiencing or seeing right now? And what's your perspective on what's happening? Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Craig. And uh, I can I speak for uh, I can speak for Shaw and all the things we see at Shaw. Of course, the way Berkshire works is it's a very uh, independent companies are very very independent. But I do talk with those folks. Uh, I can tell you, you know, we're seeing very similar what what you're uh, what you're reading about is that there is massive disruption in supply chains, and I would say, you know. One of the things I continue to emphasize is this has been a long time coming. I know a lot of people think it's kind of COVID and COVID hit and that caused it. And as soon as that goes away, everything will be fine. And I'm not 100 percent sure that that's true in that, you know, these things like driver shortages, equipment shortages, uh, infrastructure at the ports and, and congestion at ports. These things have flared up over time. And now today we have such an increased demand in the United States for products and service and products that are coming in through these through these channels that it, it's kind of become overwhelmed. And so what we're seeing is you have to literally plan for every part, if you will, plan for every movement. You have to have detailed plannings to make sure that you can get through this and service your customers, which we've we've taken the approach and, and decided that the first and foremost is we're going to be effective for our customers. Then we'll worry about how do we, you know, reduce costs or do those types of things later. But, but first and foremost, protect service for our customers. So Kevin, you mentioned that this is a long time coming, that the foundations of this crisis have been, uh, have been around and we've had um, short or short-term duration crises throughout probably supply chain history, if you will. Um, you, you've been on all aspects of the ledger, if you will. You, you've worked at a very large carrier with Schneider. You were at Whirlpool. You were at a technology, a freight technology company, uh, one of the first freight tech companies that has sort of emerged in the last 20 years. You've, you've seen all avenues of it. And now you have a perspective of a very large industrial uh, manufacturer. What... What have you seen that, that suggests to you that this crisis has been uh, building for the long term? 
Yeah, well, I mean, hey, let's. This is a question I ask anybody that I talk with, any audience I talk with is, is the first and foremost, it all starts with the with drivers, and you know they're the heroes of our industry. They're out in the out, you know, doing really hard work every day. And you start with them and ask any audience that you talk to, Greg, and ask them how many of those people encourage their their sons or daughters to become truck drivers. And I doubt you'll get a hand that'll go up. And so what's happened over time is that we've talked about this, but I can remember writing white papers at Schneider, you know, it's a long time ago, uh, talking about the onset of the driver shortage because of the way the demographics just play out. And so, so that we've seen, you know, for quite a long time. The other one I'd cite is the fact that we haven't really seen a huge asset-based trucking company get developed, uh, you know, in the last so many years. You know, right after deregulation, we had a huge spurt. We had Schneider, we had J.B. Hunt, we had U.S. Express, we had Knight, Swift, you know, you name five or six or seven of them that became large. But in the, I, I can't name one. Maybe there is one out there that I find. But let's just say in the last five years, how many, you know, huge asset-based trucking companies have come into play? And so, you know, what that tells you is there's less trucks on the road or less you know, there's less trucks available for the amount of freight we have. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. And then, of course, the infrastructure at the ports, as you know, every five years or so, we go through all sorts of problems at LA Long Beach. But now the East Coast ports are starting to back up as we just have more and more. We're setting records every month in the amount of imports coming into the United States. We set records and records, and therefore these ports just have not kept up with the growth. Now, Many of them, if you go meet with them, they'll they'll give you they'll lay out great plans and great vision for the future, and I and I really applaud them for that. But those are five and ten year projects. Those are not projects that hey, we're going to expand so next year you'll see more capacity. This is not going to happen because of all the permitting that's required, the environmental rule, all the rules that we all know about. So that's where I've seen that come along is it's really in the assets. And at the end of the day, you have to have assets to move freight. Nobody's figured out a way to, you know, take a roll of carpet, digitize it, and have it appear halfway across the country. It has to get into a truck, has to move. And that's true of appliances. It's true of any, uh, you know, any type of uh, material that, that you're trying to ship. Now, Kevin, you, you mentioned uh, the fact that this is not a West Coast story. A lot of the attention is on the West Coast, probably because there's, you know, a much bigger media market out in Los Angeles than there is in, say, Savannah. Um, so you can see the, the, the ships off the coast. Uh, but Savannah, my understanding, has actually had, in terms of percentages, is actually more backed up. What are you experiencing right now? Yeah, I mean, it is backed up. In fact, uh, I believe it's Hatpack Lloyd and CMA both have decided to not call on Savannah for the next, uh, I think, through December or into December, where they're going to they're looking at alternative ports of Charleston and Jacksonville uh, to to bring ships into. There's another large carrier that rumor has it uh, is going to suspend service to Savannah. Although you know I don't have that for sure, so let's hold off on on saying that for sure until it happens or if it happens. But people are starting to look, and and ocean carriers are starting to look into 
uh, into Charleston, Jacksonville, and even Norfolk. We've been using Norfolk quite a bit. Norfolk uh, has been a has been a decent port, but of course that throws a lot of things into a tailspin in supply chain because, as you know, you know lead times, for example, all your inventory planning is based on estimated lead times. Estimated lead times start going up. Your inventory systems start having having you know calculation issues. Those types of things start happening, and so. You know, just in general in supply chain, and this isn't a you know flooring issue or anything like that. This is supply chain in general. Is when you have huge variability, that causes all the planning systems to have problems. And variability is the enemy of supply chain. Not necessarily did it take me 20 days, 30 days, or 40 days. If I can get that number to be consistent, then I can plan for that. It's the variability that's going on right now that is really putting a problem. And of course, Savannah is not, they're not immune to this problem, just like any other port is not immune to it. Yeah, it's a good, you know, people talk about when do things return to normal. And my counter to that is that normal, that we sort of understood it before, it, we're probably unlikely to see the world turn back to the way things were before. This has been a pretty momentous uh, shock to the world economy, to how people consume stuff, to their lives. It's unlikely to return back. But you mentioned something that I think is really important, which is dependency. When you order something, whether you're a consumer or a corporation, knowing when it's going to be there is perhaps the most important. And I think we it's going to be at least, I'd love to hear when you think it's going to return back to when do you think you'll have consistency and dependability in your supply chain plan? Well, I, what's happening is, and we've just taken the approach of we're not going to wait for uh, the upstream to, quote, fix itself. And we're putting in quite a bit of, and I assume others are as well, putting quite a bit of visibility systems in and systems that can calculate what we call smart ETAs and things like that, where you take into account the variability and the standard deviation of movements, you take into account, I mean, the good part about ocean freight is with AIS data, you can get the longitude latitude of every ship if you want it. And with that kind of data, you can calculate it. So we're actually using systems where I'd say five years ago, you know, we would, just like a lot of others, would say, okay, well, what's the standard uh, transit time? And what does the what does the ocean company say it's going to be there? Then that's what you would perpetuate on. We don't do that anymore. And, and I don't think anybody in supply chain can do that anymore. You have to do these kind of more, I'll call sophisticated calculations of it. Uh, when will it actually get to... Uh, Normal, I, I just can't. I just can't predict that. I mean, I really can't. It's, uh, you know, what I look at, and I think a lot you do, and I think a lot of others look at, is you just look at this sales to inventory data, and that comes out of the Federal Reserve, and you look at how low the inventories are in the United States overall, not not just my industry, but overall, you look at how low those inventories are, for those inventories to get back to normal. This shipping, I'll call juggernaut, if you will, has to continue into the middle of next year at a minimum, because that's the only the only other way for it to come in balance would be for us to have an economic problem, you know, a, a recession or something. I don't. I mean, I I'm not an economist, so I can't project that or not project that. I'm going to assume this continues the way it is, 
And so, uh, boy, I'd be I'd be in well into next year before I'd start thinking about any stability, if you will. Yeah, predictability. It's important, Kevin. You mentioned the fact that you've invested in visibility systems. I, is this been something that has happened since COVID really disrupted your business? Have you guys accelerated that investment since then? Actually, it's an it's an interesting thing, and we're kind of you know we're uh, not lucky or good or whatever, but. Uh, but when I first got to the company, one of the things we talked about is we did a kind of a complete analysis of supply chain. We did kind of an as is to be and said, hey, uh, you know, where do we think we need to shore up our processes? And one of them was on global imports and global movement of product around the globe. And so we started that work in the summer of 2018. Um, we uh, we implemented a lot of systems at the towards the end of 2019, and then throughout COVID, we kind of really put it on steroids. Uh, and then now, of course, are in the in the camp of or in the area now where we're using those systems more than just implementing them. And uh, and it's been it's been great. I mean, I, I don't know how people can operate without these types of visibility systems and technology that then feed into their planning systems. And that's what's critical. It's gonna all feed into your planning system. It's not, I don't need a visibility system to just tell me that there's a ship, uh, you know, docked or at anchor off the port of Savannah and just sitting there. I mean, that's great information and it's headline news, but it doesn't help me. What I need is that information to then flow into my planning systems. And so that's uh, that's been really beneficial for us. Kevin, you mentioned something earlier I want to go back to. We talk about the truckload operations. You mentioned drivers. You mentioned the asset. There hasn't been an emergence of an asset-based carrier in the last five years. It's interesting. If we go back to Celadon and think about 2019, I remember younger. Now, I grew up in a trucking family where we looked at sort of the peers of, you know, my father's sort of ambitions of who he, he sort of respected and who he considered peers. And if you look at sort of the 80s, late 80s, 90s, the most profitable truckload carriers were companies like Transport America, CFI, U.S. Express, Covenant, Celadon, that had that really long haul and had a predominance of team operations. They could do that West Coast to East Coast expedite or that North-South, that I-34 corridor uh, expedite. That changed really with the emergence of intermodal and the railroads really taking out share and companies like Schneider and J.B. Hunt sort of took a lot of that and Hub Group took a lot of that predominance of freight. What else have you seen in your career? I mean, it strikes me that that long haul market, if you look at like Knight as an example, not Knight Swift, but Knight, it was one of the sort of super regional carriers that is one of the most profitable Heartland as well. It strikes me that really what's hurt the investment in the long haul trucking industry has been the railroads and their intermodal infrastructure. I mean, do you, do you share that view? Yeah. I mean, clearly intermodal disrupted the, uh, uh, the, the trucking, the long haul trucking industry in a big way. And some were slow to adopt it. Some were very fast to adopt it. I think probably JB Hunt was kind of the founder of it all. And, uh, and, and everyone else kind of, followed followed them but but clearly that disrupted the whole the whole uh, long haul but it actually was a it came in at the right time because people were looking for a solution to this driver issue in the long run and in the long run 
what a driver is disliked the most, which I think we all would, is you're out for three weeks at a time and you're away from your family and you're, you don't even know what point you're going to next and those things. And so intermodal kind of the, the whole theory was took care of all of that. And then the drivers became super regional or regional and at least had a good shot of being home, you know, uh, periodically, you know, every, every few nights or so. Uh, and so I think it did disrupt it, but it's still, you know, intermodal has its own problems. And from a service perspective, it's a big intermodal works great when you're moving product from distribution center to distribution center and and timing may not be as critical but if you have time definite uh, material to move which a lot of people do intermodal can be an issue it could be an issue from just a service we see all these in-gate problems that are existing today where you can't bring you know containers into certain yards because they're just overwhelmed. Uh, if you have a derailment or something like that, you have an, you can have an issue. So, so it brings with it its own challenges, uh, um, you know, from that perspective. We use intermodal quite a bit. But. So, so, Kevin, if, if you think about sort of the challenge that the trucking industry has is, is there isn't capital investment because returns on capital have been, have been pretty anemic. I mean, it's difficult if you look at the trucking, the asset-based carriers, and you look at their uh, relative market performance, at least public companies, which is there's few and far between uh, in transportation, but if you look at the large public companies, is most of the companies that have done exceptionally well in the last two decades have moved beyond asset-based ownership. In fact, companies that have their own asset-based operations isn't where their financial performance is coming from. It's in their logistics and in their intermodal business, uh, in their third party, perhaps warehousing. We saw a covenant diversifying outside of trucking and getting into warehousing with their land air acquisition. It strikes me that just the returns on capital are not there for any type of sort of trucking operation that is asset centric. What's your perspective on that? That's a great point, Craig. And, uh, and I don't pretend to be a you know, capital markets expert, but this problem has to be solved because, you know, uh, at the end of the day, I, you know, I might have five apps on my phone that help me find trucks, but somebody has to have a truck. Somebody has to have a driver and somebody has to have a trailer. Or the other option is, you know, big shippers have to take ownership of the assets themselves. Uh, and you're seeing that already. Of course, it always does this. It starts with, the mass of people that have that have access to that kind of capital. I saw an article the other day, it might've been from your organization that said that Amazon is now the largest parcel carrier in the United States. And you say to yourself, wow, you know, there's a shipper, uh, you know, who now has superseded the major parcel carriers, which I think most people would say, you know, could never have happened, but they're taking ownership of their assets because they just can't, rely on, you know, the the kind of gener general area. Don't forget, you know, one of the things that I continue to emphasize is the single biggest thing that, that a shipper has to do is protect its brand, protect its customers. And they'll do that. And, and they'll, they will do that in whatever means they have to do that in. And, you know, obviously Amazon's chosen to, to just build out their infrastructure themselves, but this problem has to be solved because I, I mean, at the end of the day, stuff has to move. 
The other thing that has to get solved is just our, you know, and I'm not going to, this is a political discussion, but but we have to solve this infrastructure problem in the United States. All you got to do is drive up and down I-75, say at nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night, and you see trucks parked everywhere, everywhere on the side of the road because they're out of hours, they have to take their breaks, and there's just not enough places for them to go. But Kevin, in that infrastructure bill, the largest amount of government spending in history and in physical infrastructure, there wasn't a single dime uh, allocated towards parking. So I, I agree with everything you've said, but it seems that the priorities are not to invest in things that are going to provide the trucking industry other than highways. Let's, let's, let's give credit where credit is due. Ports, highways, airports. We, we love all that. But importantly, the number one reason truck drivers say that they leave the industry is because there is no parking. It's a major safety issue. But the returns on capital for private investment in parking just aren't there. And the government should step in, but they don't seem to have the willingness to do so. Yeah, and I, I can't, I, you know, what I know is that substantively, if these issues don't get resolved in some manner, um, these supply chain disruptions won't go away. That, that's, what I, that's what I definitely do know, is these supply chain disruptions, drivers getting out of the business, drivers retiring, drive, drivers not entering. You know, there's a couple other things that we've talked about quite a bit is, you can you can join the army and you know drive a big truck down the autobahn in germany or you know god forbid go off to war but you can't drive a truck down i75 because you're 19 years old and you know those are, there are some things that i think we as an industry just have to start looking at and just say boy how can we influence that because uh, certainly uh, you wouldn't want everyone to be able to get down but if you're a if you're a veteran, like I am, I mean, if you're a veteran and you, you've gone off and done those things and you come home and then the exact job you did in the in the military, the laws say you can't do in the civilian world just seems a little odd to me, you know, so. You can fly a fighter jet at, you know, 20 years old, but you can't fly it. And I, not like I've never flown a fighter jet, nor have I driven a truck, but I can tell you that, that flying an airplane is more complicated because of all the elements that you have to deal with than flying than driving a truck. But it strikes me that there that you make a really interesting point. But I think the bigger issue is you have this trucking as an as an industry doesn't have an enormous amount of pull in Washington. And what you have is this fragmented voice between the independent operators. And we saw this during the ELD mandate. We've seen it during uh, the drug and alcohol clearinghouse and uh, hair follicle testing, all these issues, is that the big carriers seem to be dis, uh, disjointed with the small carriers, the independents. And then you even have the truckload operators and the LTO operators with different agenda. The fragmented nature is the reason we don't have great policy for trucking, whereas somebody like the railroads, because it is highly concentrated, has an enormous amount of power in Washington. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that's that's a valid. I mean, trucking has always been such an incredibly fragmented industry. Um, even if I don't know what the numbers are today, but even if you aggregate up the big, the big carriers, there's still a lot of independents out there that 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 kind of run the market. I mean, I just think that at some point, one of our you know ATA, whoever it is, um, we got to get together and just kind of figure out 
what it is that's going to make this better or where, you know, they, these, these disruptions continue. I mean, there's just no, no way around it. Um, and, and you just look at, again, I keep referring back to, and I'd ask, you know, anybody that wants to see it, you can get it. It's pretty readily available information. It's on sonar. I got my sonar, you know, screen up this morning on it. Yes. You just look at these inventory numbers relative to sales and you know, something has to give. I mean, something has to give and, and we need assets. Yeah. It's a crazy time. Kevin, really appreciate your time today. Got to ask one last question before we go. Bold prediction, five years that nobody's watching. What is it? So bold prediction, new technology. And I saw one, so this isn't really not thought of, but the holy grail for transportation all the way back to the early 90s when the paper companies tried to do it is co-loading and loading of loading of trailers so that you can get a much more efficient, dense pack into a trailer. And if, if software can help us do that, I think in the future, you're going to find more and more people collaborating on shipping, more and more shippers collaborating on shipping rather than competing on shipping. A friend of mine said this once, and, and when he first said it, I was like, oh, that was funny. But then I'm thinking, like, this may be true. Imagine five years from now, if at a weigh station, you actually got fined not for being overweight, but for being underweight. Because how many of those trucks running around the country today are not fully loaded? And it, and I and I you know this would be an interesting an analysis. They're not fully loaded. Now imagine if they all were fully loaded. They all are fully loaded. How many? What's the driver equivalent of that of hiring? So is that ten thousand drivers? Is it five thousand drivers? Twenty? I don't know the answer to that. But what I do know is that's been the holy grail for a long time. It's never been possible, but in today's world with today's technology, I think it's very possible and will be uh, in the future. Yeah, there, there's a number of companies that are technology companies. Transplace bought one that was in Green Bay. I know that you know the company well. Uh, were you, were you, Kevin, were you an investor in that or, or you were friends with the investors? Uh, with uh, Lane Hub. I, I was part of the advisory board for that company, yeah. They certainly were trying to co-mix. Uh, you've got Flock Freight, which is doing it from sort of a brokerage first model. Uh, I think Leaf Logistics is doing some stuff around there. But it is an emerging uh, sort of sector. I think Emerge is also trying to do some stuff. So and some of them are, you know, trying to match the head haul with the back haul. What I'm talking about is literally inside the truck. You know, you have, you know, I have, a, let's say I have a truck that's moving and it's only 80% full, but I'm moving it because I have to to meet service requirements, whatever. Well, who who can use that other 20%? You know, somebody might be able to use that. Yeah, but you got to you got to get the right freight. I know this in hauling carpet that carpet doesn't mix with a lot of commodities. It's got to be it's got to be the right freight, and that's technology can solve this. And of course, I'm talking generic and. And, uh, you know, when I was, I'll give you an example. When I was moving appliances out of Mexico, we did co-load with a, with a company that we put product, their product actually on top of the uh, uh, refrigerators because we had room in the, in the uh, box, the 86-foot box car. We had room in there and we were able to put it on without weighing it out. And then when we got it to a DC, we separated it out. It's a great solution. Yeah, it's... Uh... Lots of opportunity technology can help solve this. Kevin, really appreciate your time today uh, and best of luck closing out the year. Okay, thanks so much, Craig. Appreciate it.
Stay tuned for F3. We have a lot more content coming to you. And while we couldn't host it this year in person, we are looking forward to the spring. We're going to be in the epicenter of North America supply chain in Northwest Arkansas coming up this spring. The future of supply chain is going to be there. And then next fall, we will host our first event in Chattanooga at F3. We'll be back, or I should say for the first time back here. Uh, and with that, enjoy the rest of the show.